I want to, we got to complete. I thought, I just can't leave you hanging. I want you to see the completion of chapter 9, where when he's taking the offering, this is a wonderful thing going on. He's taking an offering for poor, beleaguered Jewish saints in Jerusalem. And who is he raising the offering among? Pagan, converted Gentiles. Let me tell you, there's nothing that ends racism any more than one ethnic group helping the other group financially, helping feed them, clothe them, sustain them. This is what's happening, and this is what Paul is so anxious to take an offering from the Gentiles and lay it at the feet of the apostles in Jerusalem and say, this is what these pagan moon worshipers and sex worshipers and idolaters have done in the name of the God they've received, Christ. And he doesn't make you anti-Semitic. He makes you love all people. And this is the offering. And so now he begins to roll off in verse 6 through the end of the chapter what God has promised to do for givers. And many of you have been so used of God, especially in April. Uh, these are promises you can claim. And so you, you have the notes there. Just follow me, and we'll look at what he promises to you. The point is this, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Um, let's just stop there. This is the law of the harvest. And he says it in Galatians, almost the same way. He says, uh, let me read it. Galatians, the next book over, okay? Turn right in your Bible. Go right. Galatians, okay? Chapter 6, verse 6. Notice this verse. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Stop. Isn't this what we normally say if you want to go out and sow wild oats and, 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 and raise cane? We use this verse, right? This isn't the way he's using it. Watch. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Watch. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now watch. And let us not grow weary of doing good, taking offerings, serving. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Guess what? The law of the harvest is being applied to giving and receiving. You'll get back everything you invest with God and invest in Bible teachers and the work of God. He says, I want to tell you this principle. You will reap what you sow. If you sow pennies, you'll reap pennies. If you sow dollars, you'll reap dollars. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap things of the Spirit. If you sow to the flesh, 
That's all you're going to get. Life comes back according to how you sow. And that's why young people, we say, be sure you sow good because someday you're going to have kids. And the way you treat your mama and daddy is going to come back. That one kid said, well, I want to sow my wild oats, and then I'm going to pray for crop failure. It, it doesn't work that way. You know what's scary? God might give you some kids that act just like you. Mm. I, the most outstanding people I've ever seen treat their parents so good is my wife and her brother. And they watch their home destroyed through alcohol and a whole lot of chaos but they would never raise their tongue against their parents. You've never heard Carolyn say her home was ravished by alcohol. It's her loudmouth husband. It's just the truth, but not her. Because my job is to honor my father even when he wasn't honorable. Here he's talking about finances. He's taking this offering for our suffering Jewish brothers. And he says, I want to tell you folks, I, he's encouraging them now. God will see to it that you reap everything you've sown in helping your brothers. You will never lose a dime you put in the hand of God to help others. Never. God, it's the law of the harvest. It will just happen. Then he goes on, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Giving is a decision, right? You decide, I will or I won't. You made the decision. And he said, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, now look at that. God, now, now this is what you hear all the time. Well, God just loves everybody. God doesn't love everybody the same. God does, I think, I, I want to love everybody, but I don't love everybody like I love my wife. I don't love everybody like I love my daughters. I, actually, I love you, brother, I do, but, but please don't try to be my wife. I love her in another way, on another level. I love my daughters. Uh, I can love all the sisters in the church, but I love my daughters in a different way. We all know it's unique. And God is saying, people who join him in giving come into a special category of love for all things work together for the good of those who love God. Everything's not working for good for everybody. It works together for good to those who love God. And this is a special category. If he was to say, and all of you who are stingy, stingy non-generous, and didn't participate because you decided you wouldn't, God's not saying he loves them in this way. This is moving into the giver's circle. I love givers because um, they've entered to something that is inherent to me. I'm a giving kind of God, and I love people who join me in this circle in a way I don't love those who don't give. It's like uh, I had a, I've had a uh, 
my, my grandson's father's been with us several days, and we both are in their 60s. We both grew up with rock and blues, and, and they're both guitar players. So we've been playing music nonstop for three days. I said, I went, Doug, I wish you were there. Uh, playing, and then if he really thought something's good, I said, oh, listen to Albert Collins, listen to James Cotton, all the stuff we grew up on. You know, when music was good, <laughs> when there was harmonies, when there was at least James Brown had rhythm. This stuff today is chaotic. My girl is this, and my dad is that. You know, come on. None of us, I couldn't be worldly over anything on the charts today. I mean, cacophony? No. But man, guess what? We love the same stuff. It's easy to be with him because we grew up in the same area, got the same taste, got the same jokes, and the same warped personality. We just grew. One guy said the holes in my wife's head seem to fit the ones in mine, and we make a good couple. He said, I'll love you in a special way. And you in this church, I know some of you. I remember when we took the offering to bury the pastor's wife. I'll never forget my brother on this side today sitting. When he came up to me after the service, and he said, how much is needed? And wanted to give me his credit card number to make sure that he'd give it. I said, oh, no, no, that's not necessary. Carolyn might see it. <laughs> and on Monday, he brought the check, and we buried that man's wife. You people buried. You bore the expense. That man weeps every time he talks to me about you people burying his wife. God loves people who join him in the circle of being givers in a special way. Uh, there's nothing. Uh, it's one of the reasons I love to give. I'm more blessed when I'm giving than I ever am when I'm getting. It, it just, you don't know until you do it. Now, look what God's able to do. And God is able to make you go bankrupt. Is that what yours says? Well, yeah, then. You're supposed to yell when I misread it. But some of you half asleep. Wake up. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then he quotes Psalms 112. He is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Then he quotes Isaiah. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He's saying God is able to keep enabling you to be a giver because he can keep pouring into your life pouring the resources to keep you as a channel. Why would God want to keep giving resources to people who will not pass them on? We don't want another dead sea that just receives water from the Jordan but has no outlet and everything in it dies. And a life that only receives and does not give is in the process of dying. When everything turns in on you, 
See, the death of marriage, I've been listening to some series on marriage, and a man said something profound. You know what the greatest enemy to marriage is? The greatest enemy to marriage. How many of you want to know? For a thousand bucks, I'll tell you. Hold up. Now, uh, he said, what, what is the biggest thing? If you can conquer this one thing, it will, your marriage can make it. Are you ready? If you can just conquer your selfishness. Just think about it. Selah, think about it. The biggest obstacle to a marriage is whether I always have to be first. Can two blend in and become a divine unity that complements one another, that strengths aren't used against each other? If I'm stronger in an area than my wife, do I use that strength to beat her up or to remind her she's weak? Or am I there to supplement her weakness? Does her strength become my asset? Or does she beat me to death that I'm not as sharp as her in some area? No, no, say, honey, you get all my strengths if you're willing to live with my weaknesses. And if we can just work it out and quit being so selfish, I might be able to help you where you're weak, and I won't use it against you, but we'll combine strengths and we'll be far better as a team than we ever could be by ourselves. And don't you find if you've been married long enough, it takes two of you to get a right answer? Yeah, yeah. Selfishness is the enemy. Selfishness. And it's the enemy to your Christian life. It's the enemy to being a, a, a God-directed giver. Selfishness. I'm living for me. What's in it for me? I just heard uh, John MacArthur He's been at Grace for three years, and he talks about three generations in their church. The first generation were the discoverers of truth, and they were winging it. He was in his 20s, as I understand, and they were learning how they were going to function, church, government, everything was an issue, and their staff would write position papers, and and they they battled out and dug out what they were going to die for and believe for, what the Bible really said, not what a bunch of men said. So he said, man, that was an exciting era of discovery, discovery, discovery. Then all these guys had families, and their kids grew up in the church. And he said the second generation became maintainers. They just maintained what they were handed. They never did discover it like them. They never dug it out. I trust my dad. I trust the pastor. And okay, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. But the third generation becomes the apathetic church generation that their grandparents might be Christian, their folks maybe raised them in the church, and they're the ones that gripe that the air conditioning hits them on the back of the head. And the music isn't just right. And the sermons are too long. They'll find some gripey little issue about church life. They forgot what it is to come from a broken home with pain, drugs, and alcohol. They don't have any idea how bad it can be out there. They've grown up under all the blessings of the church, the protection of parents that love Jesus Christ, and they've reaped all the benefits without really buying into it. 
They don't know why they believe what they believe, and they lose. That's the generation that easily drifts because truth isn't precious. They just, the third generation, the professional churchgoers that don't really know Christ. And so they find stuff to pick. It's the comfort. Keep me comfortable. Play to me. If you don't meet my needs, I won't be there. They would never meet at Holy Ghost Hall. They're not that desperate for a church. But some of us would meet in a tent if Jesus was there, if the truth was there, if God was there. I don't care about the building. I care, do we love people? Do we love God? Right? That's what counts. Well, I'll try to calm down a little. Um, I, I want, he says, if you keep giving, you're going to reap it. I'm going to love you in a special way. I'm able to keep you abounding. And then look at the effects of giving. And this is sacred ground. I've I got to quit here in 10 minutes or Deborah says I will upset the program. Uh, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be selfish. To, to be what? Generous. Well, why does God want to bless you? Is to make you generous. Not to buy another house in Hawaii. That's nice. Loan it to me if you've got it. <laughs> but he says, I'll prosper you to make you generous. I, I'm able to just keep, keep pouring it in. But isn't it easy as God pours it in? See, if you close your hand, God can't put any more in, can he? Okay, you've got to keep your hand open. Got to put it there and then give it out. Got to put it back, give it out. But what we do, oh, yes, sir, Lord, thank you. Right there, and we put that grip, no, and, and that's where polygrip came from, right there, ripping money, <laughs> right there. Just keep it going, keep it going. Uh, now watch this. You will be enriched in every way to be generous, and watch what happens. This is so beautiful. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Two effects of giving. It will meet the needs of the needy, the saints, suffering in Jerusalem here. Two, it will overflow in thanksgiving to God. I started to call a man last night as I was doing this. Uh, in the first year of being at Valley, I had no medical. I had no salary. I was living with my brother. And my second daughter came down with something we thought was spinal meningitis. Uh, the doctor said we got to put her in Children's Hospital in Oakland. You don't know what it's like uh, for a doctor to tell your kid, they're sick when you don't have the money. When you don't have hospitalization, you don't have insurance. I'm just starting Valley. I don't have any money. And so we got to put her in the hospital. She's running a high fever. Uh, 
and, and it looks really shabby, how much will it cost? Well, you'd pay any price to get your girl back. Well, Carol and I, we stay at the hospital. Her fever's running. We don't know. They're trying to track it down. And uh, I come home, leaving her there, wondering, and what's on a dad's mind? You want your girl back, but the calculator's going off my head. How much are they going to bill me? How much is this going to cost? I have no money. When I got home to show you how far back this was, having just got off the ark, I had a typewriter. <laughs> Why typewriters are something before computers? You know, any. I had a rotary phone so long, my, my daughter said, when are you going to get current? I said, this works. Who needs? I mean, come on. And, uh, but I came home. I still work in my sermon Saturday night. I was wrung out. And I got ready to put some paper in and turn it around. And when I turned it around, a check was in there that came out enough to pay my hospital bill for my girl. A young guy that had been a Christian only a year probably about 24 then, heard about it, came by the house, put it in my typewriter, turned it up, there was the hospital bill. I traveled with a couple in this church and we wanted to go to Muslim countries. I didn't think anybody was reaching people in Muslim countries. And so one of our missionaries says, if you're, if you're brave enough to travel with me, I want to take you into deep Muslim territories. And we met on this trip uh, many Latinos from South America, many from Brazil, that because they look so Arab, they're able to migrate to uh, Muslim countries and go in. They've got to be an engineer. They've got to have a, a tent-making trade to get in. They cannot come in as a missionary. I, I don't even know how I got in. Maybe a teacher or janitor. I don't know. Uh, but you sure don't say uh, pastor. They think you're on a mission. But as we traveled there, and uh, we were in Morocco and Egypt and Lebanon and different places, we came to this one couple, uh, and she was due to deliver any moment. Their home country was Central America, South America. They had to go to Spain. That's where her baby was to be born, but they were in another country that she was due. I mean, it, it looked like she might have gone at the most a week. No money, broke, homesick for, I believe, Brazil, homesick, a couple of children, and busted, and a baby due that I can't get her to Spain. It was something to just watch one of our men just slip them the money, inconspicuously paid for the flights, paid for the hospital stay, and to watch a young couple and their eyes stand in water and begin to thank God that somebody just took money, that if it stayed in the pocket, God would get any, all the money you keep here, God won't get any thanks for. Uh-uh. You got it. Brag on all the money you got. So what? 
Trump has got it too. But God's not getting much glory out of Trump. He just found out Obama was born in the United States. Slow in history. All the money you keep, God doesn't, doesn't make anybody give God thanks. But when I watch that Latino couple and this eight-and-a-half-month big gal ready to deliver, all expenses paid. They started praising the God that took them from Brazil to a Muslim country to risk their life and raise their kids there. You know, we always talking with some, a couple yesterday, oh, the Bay Area, the Bay Area. Well, we do send folks to mission fields, and they actually raise children out there. And they actually, some of them get saved. We've just got a martyr's complex. But you know what? That man will be thanked and praised when they see him in heaven. They will be giving thanks that God sent a Christian at the right time to pay for our baby. And that's what he's saying. When these Jewish believers suffering famine, hardship, and persecution in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden at the end of the world church over here in Achaia, Macedonia, and Corinth, send us an offering? We can feed our children. I can feed my wife. Who gave this money? The Goyim, the Gentiles, our ancient enemy. No, no, I'm now your brother. I'm now your sister. And I parted with money because your need was greater to me than my money. That's what giving's about. It causes God to give thanks. It causes saints to have their needs met. For, and then he says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. See, God will get glory. And now hear me, hear me. This is a nugget. It's so simple, but I had to be hit over the head to see it while studying. You know why? The devil wants to keep us stingy. Giving glorifies God. I got the verse, friend. It says there, it gives glory to God. God gets thanks. God gets glory. People don't brag on us. None of us, we're not going to give any of you a plaque that gave in the offering in April. Sorry, no plaques. But we will give God thanks. And we will give glory to God. And that's why the devil doesn't want you to give. He doesn't want you to glorify God, his arch rival. The devil hates God. And when we give, we're telling the devil, we don't need money to invest in your world system. We have been captured by the true God who someday will let us walk on what men covet. We'll walk on gold to show you that money will be under our feet and not in our heart. Under our feet. Well, then he says, and notice, while they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. I started praying for that man last night who did this act of love towards me 39 years ago. He got in my prayers again 
just last night as I was praying downstairs. God bless this man, of course I know his name, who paid my girl's hospital bill. If you want to get, you know, Dale Carnegie wrote a book that made him a multimillionaire, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Jesus wrote a book, too. It's in Luke 16. Use money to make friends with people. I think of the rescue mission, Deborah and those folks that do Bay Area Rescue Mission. Hey, the people that come out of the mission will love that mission, and the people that picked him up at their lowest, you make friends for life, but it's by the way of being down and out. You can get anybody to eat steak with you, but you can't any, get anybody to help you when you're broke or when you're brokenhearted. He says here, you have just caused the saints in Jerusalem to long. They want to meet you now. And guess what? They don't have any money, but they know how to pray. They're interceding for you. Would you rather have people praying to God to bless you or keep your money to yourself? I'd rather have the prayers of the saints. Saints praying for me. God blessing, provide. You don't know how much prayer you really need for your marriage, for your children, health, well-being. And then he concludes, thanks be to God for his inexpressible, unspeakable gift. What does he end the offering thanks with? God the Son. Uh, and this is what, uh, if God would just leave Jesus out of giving, I can get off. But Jesus is always in the middle of it. Why would God, and, and this is Paul, he comes in, I can't express to you, and so I give you the quote from Linsky, not able to recount or to describe or to set forth in detail that I wouldn't be going to heaven, I wouldn't have my sins forgiven, I would not be free from my guilt, I would not be a child of God, had Jesus not been willing to come and had the Father not been willing to give. I just read the story of Jephthah's vow in Judges, and I, I kind of, uh, I, my, it was gut-wrenching to me. God, why didn't you prevent that little girl from coming out the door? Jephthah said, if you deliver us from the Midianites, I'll offer to you, God, whatever comes out of the door. And when he comes back, his precious young daughter comes out singing, dancing, rejoicing. And he said, whatever comes through the door, I'll sacrifice to God. And I'm thinking, God, you could have spared him that. Why did you make him go through that? And she mourns her virginity for three months with the daughters of Israel. And then we don't know, scholars, we don't know. Was she humanly sacrificed? Was she in perpetual widowhood? We don't know. But on the surface, it looked like she was done away with as a thank you offering to the God that never told Israel to sacrifice children. And you know what hit me in the narrative? Jesus was the one that walked through the door for me. And the Father said, the only way the door to heaven can ever be opened 
is if my son will go through the door of the cross, unless he's willing to be sacrificed, I'm willing to give him, but I cannot force him to do the Father's will. It's a choice only Jesus can make. And he said, I'll go through the door of death. I'll go to the cross so my God, my Father, can give eternal life to the worst sinner that ever lived. So all of Christianity, uh, bring me Bonhoeffer. I read a fabulous line. In, uh, thank you, Tim. In Bonhoeffer, been riveted by his life. He said this, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless. You know what that is? Hell-deserving, rebellious sinners. People who could say, God damn you. People who said, there is no God. People who could blaspheme the name of God, cuss their mother, kill somebody, and they seem so worthless, I wouldn't give a dog to die for them. And God says they're valuable enough for me to give a son. Who can express such, such love, such giving? And I'm over here proud that I gave whatever I gave. And he ends it, by the way, he doesn't know where to stop. God's going to bless you. God's going to bless you. God. But by the way, I got to just stop. Paul says, I can't, I can't get my vocabulary around what he gave when he gave Jesus. Now listen to Bonhoeffer. Finish it. He says, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. Everything is exchange economics. God said the worst sinner on the planet would be worth my son to me. I would give my son to get one sinner to heaven. And on the other hand, what is so highly esteemed among men, I'm going to burn it up in fire, 2 Peter 3. It all will end in ashes. I'm not impressed with everything the world in rebellion has built. But one hell-deserving sinner, I'll take all the, I'd give more. I just thought if you piled up gold right now at about $1,500 an ounce plus, if you piled it a mile high, God said I'd never give my son to own that. But give me one eight-year-old girl in Concord that puts faith in Christ, I'd give my son for so he says, we can't describe what we've received. This is our God. This is why we give and everything seems beggarly in the face of the indescribable love gift of Christ. That's why we're not legalistic about giving. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It's anathema. But God will bless you when you give but you'll never outdo him. He's done the real giving. I must say this. We started April with a $150,000 deficit. 
we need about $36,000 a week to break even in our general fund. So we needed at least $293,000, and our giving has been down, down. January, February, March, the worst down we've ever had in 40 years compared to our budget. If everything was underwrote, including missions, agape fund, all that, uh, we needed at least 303000 to write it all, everything covered. You people, you people under God gave $313,000 in April. <laughs> Amen to the Lord. Our giving in this month was 138% above prior giving levels. We have never given this much money in a month. And what was amazing, there's about 17 people in this church give 20% of the money, about 200 give the other 80, and 1,000 give less than uh, $250 a year. In this offering, we received checks from people who had never given to us, people who heard God's voice, people who said, I, I've been convinced by the word of God that I should be a giver. So all of our, uh, all that we owed was paid. Uh, we, we had loans here from ourselves, here, there, all paying. Uh, if my right nerve wasn't pinched, I would do a Jewish dance if you'd come with me, oh, dad. <laughs> Uh, we would dance a little bit, but I, 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 what I, I want to do inside, I'm bursting with joy. I just don't want to eclipse the glory of God. He did it, and he did it through you. I just want to tell you, God used you. We have not been disappointed that we have trusted in God in our time of need. I thank you, deacons, and you elders, and pastors that gave the first 43,000 as our first food offering. Thank you, men. Thank you so much. And uh, we're going to do a little after service here, but I just have to let me praise him. Father, the giver of all good things, the giver of life, the giver of food, of raiment, of shelter, who owns all resources ultimately, and you put a certain amount of them in the pocket of each of us. Thank you, thank you for moving on hearts and liberating so many different people that have testimony after testimony. I've given and I haven't lost a meal. I've given and my joy has doubled. I've given, I never knew this was God's plan. I've either been ignorant or disobedient, but I rejoice, I rejoice that God has enabled me to give something back to him in thanksgiving. Our Father, I pray you'll bless this offering. Our needs start over in a new month, but I pray that you will multiply giving. We want to give more to missions. We want to give more to the poor. We want to do more. If you give it to us, Lord, we're going to spend it on those who don't have anything. We're going to try to hold the rope for missionaries. We're going to keep expanding 
if you're prosperous. Give our leadership the wisdom and the guidance from above to manage this money in the way that honors you most. But I pray, bless your precious people that heard the cry, responded with praying, with giving, sacrificial giving. Bless them like you said you would. We can count on you to keep your word. We bless your holy name. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.